welcome everybody to Media Sandwich, a podcast where I Monday morning quarterback the entertainment industry. And who am I? I'm Kyle Martinak. And 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 here here's the deal. I'm not feeling well. <laughs> um, I, I didn't drink, but it feels like a hangover. Means I got a headache and the runs, <laughs> to quote uh, School of Rock. So let's get the headlines out of the way so I can turn on a 90s action movie and just, just go to sleep. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's get on with video games, uh, video game news. Now, here's something. Rumors have been circulating that Amazon was going to make a formal offer to buy Electronic Arts this last week, but so far that seems to have been unfounded, or at very least it has fallen through. Uh, it, it, Business-wise, it is a move that makes total sense for Amazon, uh, because they like to tidy up their messy integration of subscription services by simply buying their way out of it. Uh, that's how they handled things with Twitch basically for the same reason. And, you know, buying EA would totally help Amazon bolster their uh, cloud-based gaming service Luna, which a lot of people, including Amazon Prime members, don't even know exists yet. Uh, I haven't I haven't gotten deep into Luna, but it seems fine. It seems fine. It seemed a lot more fine for the initial subscription price, which was like six bucks, but they cranked it up to ten. And, you know, not for nothing, 10 bucks that's approaching Microsoft Game Pass numbers, and they have a lot more stuff on Game Pass. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, EA would be a great idea for them to own a catalog of very popular games with a lot of microtransactions attached. And uh, it would also help Amazon get a little further into the game development market, because they've only dipped a toe or two in uh, on that, and it hasn't worked out very well for them lately. This is pretty much a non-story, though, I realize, because it didn't happen. But it is notable that uh, this takes place after EA's attempt to merge with NBC Universal earlier this year. That ended up falling through, uh, I think, due in part to whoever from EA was going to be the 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 honcho to run the whole Megillah after the merger wanted more voting power on the board or something some sort of back room strokey beard meeting um but that fell through and uh EA has there have been solid reports that EA has been in talks with other big business daddies who can gobble them up and this is starting to sound bizarrely sexual all of a sudden. I should probably take about 20% off of there, Squirrely Dan. But yeah, EA was feeling out Disney and Apple to buy them. Wouldn't you just love it if one of the three biggest companies on the planet was suddenly the owners of all the licenses and IP that come out of EA? Oh, you wouldn't? Oh, yeah, that must be because you're worried about the quality of the games. <laughs> um... Yeah, well, uh, that's definitely a you problem in uh, business terminology. And a me problem. I, I gotta say, I'm just glad that EA seems to be done picking their nose and totally ignoring the Star Wars license that they had a contract for. That was a really, really bad couple of years for Star Wars fans looking for a video game. We got, what, one and a half video games total out of EA? Uh, uh, two and a half. 
okay, maybe two total if you include two halves. But anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, that was bad for fans, but you know what's good for fans? Sonic Frontiers, that's what. The latest uh, Sega game featuring... I think I can say... I'm just gonna say it. The world's favorite hedgehog. Uh, <laughs> that that game got a trailer and a release date this last week. It's, uh, it's a 3D game that the Sonic team is calling an open zone game, which sounds a lot like open world, but maybe a little more limited than that. You can go in any direction and explore maps, which is pretty cool for Sonic, but there are elements of the old, uh, you know, traditional high-speed Sonic movement, uh, like the old platformers. That's also in the game, so that's cool. I think it looks really good. It looks like a lot of fun, and I like the idea, uh, the, the idea to kind of move Sonic into the next you know, the next point of his uh, development as, as a video game mainstay is to take on some things that are more modern like that. Uh, I, I think it's a great way to put some collectibles and puzzles into the game in a new way that we haven't seen before, so that's fun. The storyline for Sonic Frontiers is from Ian Flynn, who previously wrote Sonic Boom, if you enjoyed that one. Um... Uh, I think it's going to be a big hit come holiday season, which, yes, uh, it does release on November 8th, so just in time for commerce season. <laughs> Check out that trailer. It's all over the place. And yeah, that one's going to be available, I think, on all console platforms. Uh, I know that it's going to be on the Xbox platform and the Switch. Uh, those are the ones I'm always looking at because those are the ones I own. But I believe it will be on PlayStation as well. And, uh, oh yeah, hey, one last video game note. If you haven't played Multiverses, then, well, first off, who are you? Because that game just passed the 20 million players mark, which is pretty good. Uh, but anyway, the Warner Brothers, uh, IP brawler that begs the question, what if Super Smash Brothers, but with the Looney Tunes? Uh, they have a, a very likely new addition coming to the game that's very memorific. Uh... Uh, you see, Warner Brothers has put a trademark request with the European Union Intellectual Property Office for Big Chungus. <laughs> Big Chungus! We all know him. Uh, this request uh, with the, the IP office in Europe, it does not call out Multiverses the game uh, by name, but that much chonkier version of Bugs Bunny that we all know as Big Chungus was added to the mobile game uh, Looney Tunes World of Mayhem at one point previously, so it stands to reason he's probably going to appear in this newer hit game from Warner Brothers. Now, no word, of course, on if he's going to be uh, a standalone character. I I would have to assume that he's going to be like a premium skin for Bugs Bunny. That seems to be what everybody thinks, and that's, yeah, that's most likely. It makes the most sense for a meme character, right? Now, obviously, I think it's very funny that Big Chungus has permeated pop culture enough that Warner Brothers is kind of sort of making him an official or close enough to official piece of their enterprise. That's funny. It, it, it does scare me a little bit, though, because it really screams of like a dark Ready Player One universe future that we're looking down the barrel of right now, where everyone will sign in to a gigantic service-based Massive multiplayer online experience where the only cred you can muster and maintain is based on how esoteric a character that you can think of to use as an avatar. 
I, me personally, when that day comes, I call shotgun on playing as, geez, what, uh, Bruno Kirby's character from City Slickers. Sure, why not? I'll be that guy. Jesus. It's, it's dark. It's a dark, dark future we're looking at, and, uh, it's not fun. But anyways, speaking of dark futures that are no fun, let's look at movies. Uh, <laughs> I have declared a moratorium on talking about Warner Brothers as a movie, uh, uh, movie house that's making all the wrong moves. Instead, let's talk about, uh, we gotta talk about Marvel. Sorry. If you're, if you're, if you have Marvel fatigue, sorry, but that's where a lot of the movie industry's news is headed towards these days. And what better news than Matt Shackman, who made, in my opinion, the best Marvel television show thus far, WandaVision, is now, uh, looks like he's all signed, sealed, and delivered to be the director on the Fantastic Four movie. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about all the movies they announced at, uh, Comic-Con, and one of them was, hey, Fantastic Four, come in 2024. We don't have a director yet. And that gave me pause, because that's, that's very soon for not having a director if you don't have a director but you have a release date and it's like a year and a half from now that's scary but you know they were courting john watts who did the home the spider-man home trilogy and he backed out of it so they've gone with shackman uh he's also directed a lot of other tv outside of marvel namely he did some game of thrones episodes and and some Always Sunny in Philadelphia episodes, so he's got a good mixture of experience and tone and stuff, and he's one of, because of WandaVision, he's one of Marvel's current kind of up-and-coming big dogs, so they're gonna let him eat, let the big dog eat, you know? This is, uh, this is a great place to establish himself. Now, here's the thing, it's not a win-win scenario for movie fans, because Matt Shackman was already signed on, to direct the next Star Trek motion picture. Ugh, Paramount just can't catch a break with Star Trek movies. They cannot. Uh, they had Tarantino doing whatever it was that he was doing with Star Trek, and predictably he stepped away when they were like, no, Quentin, you can't have total, unadulterated control of Star Trek. We have rules about Star Trek that you cannot cross. And then uh, Noah Hawley of Fargo fame also tried to do a take, and then he stepped off to play with the Alien franchise on FX. Whatever that's going to turn out to be, that that's weird. And and now this, the Matt Shackman movie, uh, it was going to be in the Kelvin series. It was going to be the fourth of the Kelvin uh, Star Trek movies, so... Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, Carl Urban, John Cho, Simon Pegg, everybody. They were all in the pocket. They were signed on and ready to come back, which that in and of itself was impressive. Uh, there was a lot of talk that that wasn't going to be possible because they're all such big stars now. And uh, it hurts. It hurts that, that it it's not dead yet. The movie itself is not dead, but... Uh, you know, I just, I really liked the 2009 Star Trek. And I know that that's not, it's not an unconventional opinion, but there are a lot of people out there who are like, that's not a Star Trek. That's J.J. Abrams auditioning to do Star Wars. And you're not wrong. I I agree with that. But at the same time, to a, to make Star Trek appeal to a broad general audience 
who would go to a theater and plunk down their 10 to $15 a piece for it. It was kind of a step in the right direction. It made Star Trek exciting and fun again, and Star Trek hadn't been for a long time at that point in 2009. It's very of its era, that 2009 Star Trek movie, because it is a reboot that takes all of the things from Star Trek that all audiences can kind of approve of. And yeah, you know, Star Trek has been missing in those movies kind of the more contemplative, you know, let's sit down and talk about the morality of what we're doing in this sci-fi storyline kind of thing. But that's what television's for. And uh, yeah, Star Trek is kind of killing it with the TV shows at the moment. Season three of Lower Decks just dropped and Strange New Worlds was a big monster hit this summer. But the movies are just kind of cursed at this point. I mean, Star Trek Beyond was the last one. That was... Man, that was eight years ago already, was it? No, that was like six years ago, but still, it'll be eight years before before we see another one. And I thought Beyond was an absolutely fantastic movie, by the way. I had so much fun with that one. It's honestly possibly my favorite Trek movie since First Contact. Uh, but yeah. Uh, anyway, Shackman's doing Fantastic Four. He's not doing Star Trek. So, uh, that is a good fit, though. I think that he is a good fit for Fantastic Four. I hope they let him do some weird stuff with it. One of the best parts of WandaVision was how weird it was allowed to be aesthetically and tone-wise. It shifted tone, you know, between a bunch of different TV evolution of, like, the sitcom stuff and the, you know, typical Marvel adventure stuff, but with a little healthy dose of weird mystery to it. I want some weird cosmic stuff for the Fantastic Four. If you're going to bring them in, you got to bring in the things that make them different from other Marvel properties. And one thing is, in the comics especially, the Fantastic Four get weird with, like, the far-out space stuff that they do and the alternate dimension stuff that they do. All of the stuff that Reed Richards is cooking up in his in his basement. Um, and hey, and hey, now that we've got a director, can we start talking casting? My vote is for William Jackson Harper as Reed Richards. Please give me Reed Richards with that cheaty Anagonye energy from The Good Place, a show that I absolutely love. Uh, that's my only one that I've got. Although, although, if you're looking at The Good Place, would it be ridiculous? Would it be absolutely ridiculous if Ted Danson was Doctor Doom? Yes, it would be absolutely ridiculous, but maybe not necessarily in a bad way. And the beauty of it is he just, once you get him in the metal mask, he would just have to do voice work. I'm sure Ted Danson would show up for that, right? Uh, it's just a playful thought of mine. I'm not serious about that one, but I am serious about William Jackson Harper. That's good casting, damn it. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the other other non-Marvel world of movies, uh, Francis Lawrence has signed on to direct a movie based on the fantastic video game Bioshock. That's one of my favorite games of its generation. It's uh, just such a moody and and weird, mind-bending kind of aesthetic that that game has. It's it's a beautiful game in how kind of creepy it is. And Lawrence, pretty good choice. He's the director of Constantine, I Am Legend, all of the Hunger Games movies and uh, Red Sparrow with Jennifer Lawrence. No relation, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure no relation there. 
Uh, I think he's pretty good, actually. He's made a lot of uh, a lot of hay out of world building, especially in those Hunger Games movies. But even in Constantine and I Am Legend, I think Constantine is an unfairly maligned movie. I remember watching that one on uh, one of the premium movie networks. Might have been Stars. Y'all know Stars, anyway. But anyway, I thought Constantine was kind of a fun take on the dark magic uh dc comics kind of stuff you know people people did not like keanu reeves being cast as john constantine because he's not british and he's not blonde and he's not smoking and okay i get it i i understand that perfectly at the same time though i thought he did a pretty good job in it i thought it was a pretty fun movie it was appropriately bonkers i thought and honestly i think the show uh i think the show supernatural actually owes a lot to the movie Constantine, but that's me personally. And it, honestly, the first 40 minutes of I Am Legend are are great. I really enjoy I Am Legend right up until, you know, it's too much CGI creature stuff. When it's just Will Smith and a dog in an abandoned Manhattan Island, that's, I mean, it's really, really cool to look at and it holds the screen it holds my attention will smith is doing great like castaway style i'm the only person in this movie so i have to hold together the movie myself kind of movie star energy the dog is a great great canine thespian so honestly i like francis lawrence movies i guess is what i'm trying to say uh i i think uh bioshock needs that world building that focus on texture and aesthetic that he aesthetic is kind of my key word this week but he can capture the tone of bioshock pretty well i think for uh for netflix who's developing it now hey if you listen to the show a lot you might wonder is kyle gonna look down his nose at this one because it's a netflix movie but i do believe this might be something that netflix cares about because it is going to theaters it looks like i thought i saw somewhere this one they are planning on releasing it in the theater, so it's not just a uh, uh, crockbuster, as it were, a, a movie of the week that cost a quarter of a billion dollars. So hopefully some fun underwater with Bioshock. And finally, I have some news about Laika. I love Laika. Laika is a great movie studio. Coraline is a dang instant classic when it came out. Paranorman is exactly my brand of, of stuff. Kubo and the Two Strings, beautiful, beautiful movie. They just make gorgeous stop-motion films, and I love them. Uh, I'm, I'm also biased because Laika happens to be headquartered right in my hometown. Uh, their studio, funny story, their studio is actually right across the road from the stadium where I played high school football, or rather where I sat on the bench for high school football. Uh, their, their new movie, uh, coming soon titled, uh, Wildwood is going to actually be set in Portland. Uh, so that's cool. They're using the city of Portland, which I think lends itself very well to kind of a, a dark fantasy, which is what this movie sounds like. It's going to be directed by Travis Knight, who's, uh, Laika's CEO and president. He's also the director of Kubo and the Two Strings as well as uh, Paramount's one very good, in my opinion, objective the one objectively good Transformers movie, which is Bumblebee. <laughs> I liked Bumblebee. I thought it was good. 
By the way, uh, you know how we talked recently about a movie adaptation of The Fall Guy, the 1980s TV show? Yeah, it turns out Travis Knight is going to direct one of those. Uh, it's coming out pretty soon as well, but it's the $6 billion man based on the $6 million man TV show of your of of olden times and that's cool uh it's starring mark Wahlberg. that's less cool <laughs> but anyway uh yeah wildwood uh from like a dark fantasy uh it's about a girl who must save her baby brother from an enchanted wonderland that's in the woods just outside of portland and uh that's when when the baby is kidnapped by a murder of crows and take him into the woods Sounds pretty cool. Sounds like fun to me. It sounds like a great, uh, sounds like a great, like, you know, Halloween-y kind of thing that you could watch. And so the big news is they've announced the voice cast of Wildwood, and it's pretty stacked, folks. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is going to be the lead. Mahershala Ali is in it. Uh, Jacob Tremblay, who's, you know, still very hot right now. Aquafina. I mean, this, that, those names, that's just the top build right there. It'll also have a dynamite supporting cast, uh, Jermaine Clement, Charlie Day, Jake Johnson, the legendary, uh, Angela Bassett, who's terrific and everything, uh, Richard E. Grant, who's, I'm a big fan of, a personal favorite of mine, Maya Erskine, who, if you don't know, she's the creator and star of Pen15, a terrific show on Hulu. And she's very funny in it, and she I think she's doing some great work. And one very powerful voice on this list, Tom Waits. Hello, Mr. Pocket! Yeah, this sounds great. I'm excited for Wildwood. This is going to be a great movie, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm hyped now. I'm really hyped. Anyways, uh, let's move on to comic book news. Uh, in the world of comic books, uh, we've got something from each of the big two. So to start with Marvel, Monica Rambeau, a character that uh, we know now in the MCU, um, she's getting her own comic book title, finally, for the first time. And she's officially changed superhero names. So uh, if you are an MCU fan, you know Monica from uh, uh, Captain Marvel. She's the little kid who looks up to Carol Danvers in that movie, because that movie takes place in 1995, but she's also the adult uh, agent of S.W.O.R.D. who investigates Wanda's weird bubble in WandaVision, and eventually, spoilers for WandaVision, she gains uh, her own superpowers by the end of it, and she's she's also going to appear in the Marvels alongside Captain Marvel and Iman Vellani's Ms. Marvel, so she's getting to be a big character, a big presence in the MCU, the character has actually been in the comics for a long time, since like the early 80s, 82, I think, and she's never headlined her own title. That's crazy. That's really crazy. I mean, we've had Aunt May standalone comic books, so it's very strange that Monica Rambo's just now getting her own title, but it's good. Uh, she, as a superhero, once she got her powers, she all, she did hold the Captain Marvel name for a little bit back then, as well as being called Photon, Pulsar. Most recently in the comics, she was known as Spectrum. Now, in her new solo comic series, she's officially changed back to Photon, which, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the best choice. 
of those three names that she's been, Photon, Pulsar, and Spectrum, Photon is the best one. The others kind of sound like reject characters from the boys to me. <laughs> um, but anyway, awesome. The new comic is uh, going to be written by Eve L. Ewing, and uh, the art is Michael Santamaria. And I'm looking forward to it. The first cover, I'm, I'm looking at the first cover right now. And I gotta say, it's pretty breathtaking. Marvel does a great job of issue number one covers really debuting a character in all their glory. And that's what this is. A terrific use of, uh, you know, cosmic colors surrounding Monica in her black and white suit. So really great color juxtaposition. Just good stuff. I'm excited for that one. That should be a fun book. Now, on the DC side of comic books, not so awesome. Uh, so, back in June, DC revealed a bunch of covers for the upcoming Hispanic Heritage Month celebration. Hispanic Heritage Month is uh, from middle of September to middle of October, uh, 15th to 15th. And so they debuted back in June, hey, we're going to do a bunch of covers. Uh, DC's been doing this a lot. Uh, lately, they did a whole run of DC Pride covers for Pride Month, so it's kind of the thing that they're doing these days. And these covers will feature all of the great DC characters who are Hispanic. There's Renee Montoya, who took over as The Question a couple years ago. Uh, Jessica Cruz is the Green Lantern. Bane, uh, Blue Beetle, Hot Girl, a couple others. Uh, so, yeah, uh... This didn't go as smoothly as the DC Pride covers situation. Um, they revealed it back in June, as I said, but the Hispanic Heritage covers caught fire this last week because the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern cover had to be altered from the original, uh, the original art. And we this week saw a before and after image that got circulating on social media. And it was less than flattering. Originally, the Kyle Rayner cover was a big tribute to the uh, Mexican muralist Jorge Gonzalez Camarena, uh, his famous piece, uh, La Patria. And uh, it's a very patriotic Mexican image. Uh, from what I've read, they've had to alter the comic book cover due to copyright issues with the original artwork. So the big changes that they put on it were the giant Mexican flag behind Kyle on the cover, which is directly out of La Patria, the big Mexican flag with the bright colors. Uh, they've changed it to just a, kind of a generic Green Lantern green flag that simply has Viva Mexico on it. And not even with, like, the proper, you know, punctuation. Uh, fellow white Americans, I mean the upside-down exclamation point. It's it missing. So it's just, you know, the one exclamation point. Not a big deal, but look, punctuation is what I do for a living, so it's kind of a kind of a pain in my ass a little bit. And also, oh yeah, the Green Lantern device that's in Kyle's hand in the original has been changed to an overflowing bag of tamales. Pause. If <laughs> if you know if you know uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's podcast, pause. All of the covers for Hispanic Heritage Month feature the Hispanic characters that I mentioned enjoying or being surrounded by foods from their specific cultures. Like, that's on purpose, and it's a theme that they're doing with all of these covers. Some of them are more elegant than others, like uh, the question, the Renee Montoya question, is fairly innocuous. It's just her posing with some uh, some 
tropical fruits circulating around her as she poses in front of a big Dominican flag. You know, not that big a deal. The Blood Syndicate cover is the whole team having what looks like a pretty casual cookout, which is kind of fun and, you know, disarming. Uh, but, 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 that's a heavy but. Uh, Hot Girl is also portrayed as a waitress serving platanos. That's pretty weird to make her a waitress. And uh, notably, the original artist on the Kyle Rayner cover that we mentioned, uh, Jorge Molina, has distanced himself from it completely and had his signature removed from the cover art once those changes went into effect. So he did not care for the alterations they made to his homage. Now, look, the easy thing to do is to call this a bad look for DC, a very stereotypical reduction of Hispanic culture for all of these covers to food, uh, but especially egregious in the case of the Molina cover, changing an homage to a culturally significant piece of proud Mexican artwork to what amounts to, you know, cheap pandering, a a cheap kind of recognition joke of Mexican culture. Now, let me insert myself into this argument for just a brief moment. I am the whitest white boy who ever did white, but I am married to a Mexican immigrant. I, uh, I showed her the covers without giving her any context. The only thing I said was, hey, look, DC is doing these covers for Hispanic Heritage Month, and she laughed in approval. She said, yeah, no, this tracks. Uh, you know, food is a very important aspect of Hispanic culture. It's, it's not just, this is, you know, a recognition thing of this is what we eat. This is what we make in our kitchen. It's a keystone connection between human beings in a large part of this world. And through the eyes of my wife, these covers rang true as a concept. Yeah, that's who, that's who I am. That's who we are. Was kind of the, you know, that was kind of the message she was sending. And I can personally attest that even with the heavy language barriers and cultural divides, food is a great equalizer, a bridge between my in-laws and me. So it stands to reason that that's, it was all done in a positive perspective from DC. The idea of, well, hey, this is, this is something you can connect any audience member to Hispanic culture is through the food. It's the thing most non-Hispanic people recognize immediately from Hispanic culture is the food. Uh, Now, so, you know, you ask your average Hispanic person, or rather 10 of your average Hispanic people, you might get some nods of approval for these covers based on that, based on that basis, I think. And, but in equal measure, the opposite side of that coin and the other, uh, you know, five of those 10 people would probably say, well, yeah, that's the problem. This is all white America thinks of us. They think Hispanic people, their minds go directly to tacos, burritos, margaritas, donde esta el baño, ah ha 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 ha. And you know what? Both reactions are correct. I think, I think that it's equally true that Hispanic culture does revolve quite a bit around food, which is why this was a choice that was made, and it was made in good faith, but at the same time, on the opposite side of that, it's not necessarily wrong to look at it and say, yeah, this was an easy gopher hole for DC to avoid. One superhero munching on a taco, or in the case of Bane tucking into a plate of flan, yeah, that's fun, actually, it's funny. All of them doing it on seven covers, it rings a little lazy and uncreative, at the least. There are so many 
other aspects of Hispanic culture that you could try to explore and expose an unknowing audience to. But, hey, you know, Bart Simpson throwing the cake away, you know, uh, at, at least you tried. Um, I'm starting to talk like that alien from Star Trek who can only only speak in references to other things. Only all of mine are, are Simpsons. Uh, so sorry about that. Anyway, let's move on to TV news. Uh, quick, quick news first. Uh, I've been musing about video games being adapted into streaming television shows, and Netflix has apparently been thinking about it as well because they've decided that maybe it was a mistake to do so. They canceled their Resident Evil show after one season, which is pretty atypical of Netflix. They would usually give anything a second season to try to improve its bad numbers, this one must have done really not great, or it was extra prohibitively expensive. I wonder if this affects the Assassin's Creed series at all, because I have to think that as expensive as Resident Evil probably was, Assassin's Creed must be much more expensive. Just the costumes alone. Just those hoods, right? Just the hoods and the retractable knives alone. But I don't know. I I have no idea. They the, clearly Netflix is not out on all video games cuz they're doing that BioShock movie that we just talked about. So, I don't know, but that's kind of sad. I feel bad for the folks that worked on the Resident Evil show cuz it's kind of appears to be, you know, the MO at Netflix. If this is not a super smash monster hit in its first week, then we're not going to pay for any more of it. Well, that's how TV goes these days and that sucks. But on the uh, on the other hand, uh, we have another piece of news that kind of speaks against that uh, conceit. And let me just give you five words, five words, folks. And those five words are six seasons and a movie. <laughs> this this might belong in the movie section of the podcast, but Community at its heart is a television show. And it's one of my favorite television shows. So, uh, I'm putting it here in TV. The Community Movie has a screenplay outline. A screenplay outline. And <laughs> there is an outline, and the project is being shopped around by creator Dan Harmon. I don't want to get my hopes up, but I think that the show's renewed cultural footprint, thanks to uh, it dropping on Netflix right during the heart of the pandemic, and then just as that was exploding with people with home views while everybody was trapped inside, they did that virtual uh, reunion and table read during the pandemic. I think that that might have generated enough goodwill towards community that the movie might actually happen at this point. Dan Harmon himself very reserved about it, saying, yeah, don't worry, it's definitely at this point, it's definitely gonna happen but don't get mad if you don't hear about it for another year. It will not happen immediately. Uh, very cautious optimism. But that reunion, uh, if you hadn't seen that video, a great way to spend an hour during lockdown. Go fire up YouTube, see if that's still around, because it's... I don't know if they took it down or not. It was one of those things where they're like, this will never happen again, so we're going to take it down after you know we generate enough money for charity or whatever it was for, but... It was a great table read of a great episode. Uh, yeah, I imagine if you're doing a movie now, just about everyone would come back. I mean, not just just about everybody from that cast still has goodwill towards it, except for Chevy Chase, of course, which is fine. 
he's a bit of an ass and he's dead. His character is dead. Chevy Chase is not dead. But uh, speaking of Chevy Chase, uh, anybody see that trailer for Confess Fletch with John Hamm? I think it looks like fun. I'll, I will not be surprised if Chevy Chase uh, climbs out from under whatever rock he's hiding under to say, this isn't my Fletch. We know, Chevy. Shut up. Uh, but um, Donald Glover might not retar- return either. Uh, that's I don't think he's a definite coming back. He could, but I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. But I'm pretty sure everyone else would, uh, including my favorite from season six, Paget Brewster. Paget Brewster, in my opinion, very great in that final season, and I want to see her in more things because she pretty and she funny and she a uh, very very good addition to that show later in its life. I actually liked those last couple seasons of Community. I know the first three seasons or so are the ones that everybody remembers, but the last ones they took some risks and they did some funny stuff. Uh, so yeah, Community, six seasons and a movie. Keep circulating the hashtag, folks. Let's see what else we got. Final item in television. This one's uh, also coming from friend of the show, and I, I guess we're going to have to start calling him our field correspondent, Jeremy F., who sends this one to me. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. And it's a really interesting story. Somebody found the previously lost footage of the American Sailor Moon adaptation, uh, known around the internet colloquially as uh, Saban Moon, because it was produced by those folks at Saban. They have Power Rangers fame. Uh, This comes from YouTuber Ray Mona, who uh, her thing is she finds lost media. That's her premise for her channel on YouTube, including apparently a Mean Girls game that never happened. So she found something having to do with that. Uh, But yeah, uh, really cool that she found this pilot episode, which combines animation and live action to give American audiences a taste of Sailor Moon years before we actually ended up having it. Uh, It was a show that never did air. And yeah, the, the, the big weird thing for me, combining animation and live action. So apparently when the Sailor Scouts are on Earth, they're played by live action actresses as like, you know, relatable teens. And then when they go into space, they transition to animation. And the animation looks really different. It's a very Disney princess movie from the early 90s look, very like Beauty and the Beast cell animated. Uh, very curious choice, but it makes sense. You can kind of see what they're going for. If, if they want this show to appeal to young girls in America... Obviously, they would want it to look familiar to them, you know, from a character design standpoint. Uh, yeah, really interesting stuff. The The unaired pilot was actually found in the Library of Congress files where they preserve stuff. You know how the Library of Congress is like, we're putting this movie in our vault because it's culturally significant. And when the John Travolta aliens show up and decimate our entire civilization in nine minutes, we will still have this episode of Frasier or whatever. Um, Yeah, but they put this in there, even though it never aired and it wasn't culturally significant at all. But hey, pretty wild. Uh, I do suggest everybody who's interested goes and checks out Raymona's two-part video about it. Uh, Very fun uh, curio, very cool lost artifact of pop culture. Uh, And uh, you know what? That's it. 
that's the stuff I've got for you. Thanks for tuning in, as always, and do be so kind to subscribe to the show if you haven't. Tell your friends about it, too. Write me a review anywhere. Uh, the show is in more places now, and the RSS feed is in much smoother hands now that we are hosted by Anchor, which we made that transition recently. So we're available at anchor.fm slash media dash sandwich. I kept the dash in there. And we're also available on Spotify now. So that's cool. Not to worry, though, the show's still available on your Apple Podcast app, your Google Podcast app, your Stitcher app, any podcatcher app that has us via our RSS feed. It's the same feed. Nothing has been disrupted. If you are subscribed, you're still subscribed. We didn't lose you. I, I almost had a panic attack about that. But yeah, we're available in more places even now, so spread the word and submit your news items to me as well, like Jeremy did, to uh, Twitter at media underscore sandwich or facebook.com slash media sandwich show, or you can email the show at media sandwich show at gmail.com. I'm Kyle Martinak, and uh, I'm gonna go make a sandwich right now, guaranteed. I think maybe, uh, I got a Blu-ray here for Executive Decision. I'm going to throw that on. Yeah.